Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey everyone, welcome back to OMD Daily. This is the July 8th, 2020 episode and when this goes out, it'll be pretty late and I apologize, um, well, compared to like the normal schedule which happens in the morning, I've just been kind of falling behind all week and just trying to chase and chase and chase. I'm hoping that by next week everything will be back on schedule, but things always tend to come up and never go as planned. But anyhow, um, I was able to eventually complete, not complete, but um, round out my first pass look at a new business this week. Um, Looked at Roku, which the ticker symbol symbol is also Roku, R-O-K-U, Roku Inc. It's a business based out in... I believe the headquarters is in Silicon Valley in the California Mountain View San Fran area. I forget where the actual headquarters is based out of. But yeah, so I'll talk about the company today. Um, once again, kind of going over the highlights, but the main full report will be available on um, omdventures.com as well as the show notes. So check it out if you're curious about just more details. And yeah, so this this report wasn't as long, I think, as like the previous one with Google. Um, I think there's more of a nine-pager, if I count by page numbers. Um, when I write on Google Docs, it shows me that. But yeah, so what? I guess I'll start with, you know, what is, what is Roku? Roku, um, like I think that was like the big question I had to kind of spark this initial curiosity. Um I first heard of the company or came across it while looking at the 13 Fs of Pat, uh, Pat Dorsey. And for those of you who don't know, Pat Dorsey is kind of this, um, his investing style is, is just very focused on moats. And he's written a book on uh, moats and competitive advantages. And he used to be at Morningstar. And his podcast interviews also quite entertaining if you, can, um, if you have time to listen to a couple of them to understand his investment philosophy definitely check it out but I've always I enjoyed listening to his ideas and his approach to investing and he also has a pretty concentrated style I think his portfolio tends to always have less than 10 stocks so I tend to follow what his portfolio updates are from time to time and I saw Roku come up on it a couple times and that's when I first got a little curious but I thought mm, yeah I don't know this company never heard of it but I'll let it go and then Recently, the name popped up multiple times in various podcast episodes. It might be because I was specifically searching for more marketing and digital advertising uh, related businesses. And I think also with my foray into learning about Spotify, it broke who kind of came up a couple times as well. But yeah, so that's kind of why I started digging into Roku um, to get an idea of it and yeah, so I'll kind of, I guess, start with the initial history. Because the history that I heard about made it even more interesting to look at the company. Because at this point, uh, just like you, if you have never heard of the company before, I had no idea what the company was. But the history was that it was founded by a guy called Anthony Woods, who's still currently the CEO of the company. 
and he was founded in 2002, but he had created a company before that in the dot-com like 90s era called replay tv and it's literally what it sounds like it was about replaying your tv kind of like tivo from back in the day i've never used it but from what i know it's a feature where you can kind of record shows and rewatch it and long story short uh anthony woods's company got bought out by sonic blue because it wasn't kind of going that well and he continued working on replay tv while at sonic blue and he created this feature where you could skip ads and that ended up getting, I think, sued or something by MGM, Disney, and like Paramount. Um, and eventually Sonic Blue went bankrupt. And Woods still kind of had this idea of, um, I guess, having this kind of TV box where you continuously watch, show, watch shows that you wanted and practically stream. And so the idea for Roku apparently came out in 2002, and he brought the idea to Reed Hastings of Netflix. Eventually, um, Reed Hastings recruited woods to join netflix in 2007 and they built out a project called project griffin which is what kind of was the work that roku ended up becoming the idea was i think to create this um tv box that could hook up to your everyday tv because this was before the smart tv era and then you could just stream netflix um to your tv eventually that project was axed because Netflix apparently viewed it as kind of like a conflict because Netflix wanted to be on all kinds of various platforms. And if they had their own, then it might be seen, I guess, with some kind of licensing issues. I'm not too familiar with what it was. But what what resulted is that Roku, the project was axed, and then it was kind of spun out as a separate company. And it launched its first hardware box in 2008 and eventually made this, I think, I don't know if it's a pivot, but it launched Roku TV, which is what Roku is known for now, Um as it's embedded into all kinds of smart TVs in 2014. Soon after the company IPO'd in 2017, and that's kind of the history of it, and that's kind of what made it interesting for me. I think the most interesting thing was how Roku was spun out of Net- of Netflix, and I was curious to see if there was some kind of affiliation or kind of unique partnership that could position Roku in a very unique way compared to competitors, and so that's why I decided to dig into it. So what is Roku? Roku is, in, in my definition, um, it's a TV streaming platform software. I think that's kind of the simplest way to put it. Um, it's practically like they don't make any content that I'm aware of. All they do is like they're kind of software that's embedded in your s- smart TV. And it allows you to view all the various OTT uh, content providers. OTT stands for over the top. Um, which is practically all the content providers that focus on just streaming con- um, streaming based content. So Netflix, Hulu, HBO Max, Disney, all that stuff. And Roku practically has these two main ways of delivering this uh, software product. One is the Roku TV, which I mentioned is embedded in the smart TV. I don't have a smart TV and my TV is something, I think it was bought in 2012. <laughs> so um, it's quite outdated and the other way that Roku actually um, delivers the software for someone like me who uses a not-so-smart TV is using the streaming stick. Uh, if you're familiar, I'm familiar with the Amazon Fire Stick and Google Chromecast, so that would be kind of more of the similar equivalents. Um, these are it's kind of like a box you can kind of connect using a HDMI cable, um, similar to like an Apple TV as well. So those are kind of the two ways that um, Roku delivers its product and service. It's 
other than buying the actual hardware, um, you don't actually have to pay to use Roku. Uh, it seems like the way it works is I have it, and if I have a Netflix account, I just log into Netflix, and I'll just watch Netflix on the Roku platform that's embedded into the actual smart TV itself. And so for me, I thought, well, okay, I, it seems pretty simple. Um, what's the big deal about it? Is it popular? Is it kind of, you know, how does it play in the market? And as of 2019, Roku had 37 million active accounts. Um, so an account could have multiple users or viewers because it could kind of be part of a family account as well. But an active account is considered any account that has streamed over the last 30 days. And I think what's more possibly indicative of um, the engagement users have on Roku is the hours of content that were streamed. So 40 billion hours of content was streamed in 2019. And to kind of put that in perspective, um, that comes out to about three hours of streaming per day per account uh, in a given year. And apparently the average American watches about four hours of TV a day. So three hours, uh, it seems like it's kind of getting close to the limit for the average American at least. But yeah, that's quite a lot of TV, I'd say. Um, and Roku predominantly, I believe, operates in the US. Like they do have their products all over North America and South America. And I think in some countries in Europe as well. But they make, um, they don't disclose the geographic distribution but it seems like they make most of their ad money all in the u.s and so i'm more so i'm more so in the belief that um the streaming hours and the active user accounts are still predominantly focused on the u.s as well and what else oh and i guess this kind of adds to the popularity um apparently as of 2019 one out of every three tvs that are bought uh, in the U.S. are Roku TVs, so Roku TVs as in the software is inside the manufacturer, and I believe the main kind of large partnership that they have are with Walmart's own in-house brand, ONN, and TLC, and Hisense. Those, I think, are the few that kind of stick out um, for manufacturers. Now, there's others out there like Sharp, Sony, Samsung. Um, I think those are the bigger ones that I'm more familiar with. I don't know about ONN, TLC, and Hisense, but... Once again, I'm kind of outdated in the TV game since I haven't looked at a TV, bought a new TV in eight years. So these might be the new up and coming brands. I think I read that at least on Amazon, the best selling TVs um, tend to be mainly these TLC TVs that are Roku TVs. So it seems like at least in the new uh, adoption of smart TVs that people are slowly converting to a smart TV, Roku is definitely taking at least a third of um the new smart TVs that are coming online. As far as the actual market share is concerned, there's various, I think, ways to look at it. Um, but the ones that I found that were cited most often were related to the streaming media player market. Um, and the various kind of sources I share uh, include like Parks Associates and Statista.com. And they generally kind of put at a pretty similar range of Roku having a 36 to 39% market share as of Q1 of 2019. Now, that's about a year outdated, and I know COVID probably made a big difference and a big splash um, with Roku as well as the rest of the players in the market, but that's kind of the data I'll use for now. So Roku has about 36 to 39% of the market. Uh, the second player is Amazon at something around the 28 to 30%. So arguably, these two players alone have 70% of the U.S. market in relation to the streaming media player market. And behind them is Apple at something like 15%, Google at about 12%. So Amazon 
its products are the Amazon Fire TV, which have, I think, three different lines. There's like the Cube, there's the Stick, and the High Definition Stick, I think. Uh, Apple has the Apple TV, um, and I think Apple TV also has partnerships with other TV providers. I think it might be Samsung, um, where the Apple TV comes built into the smart TV as well. So these guys are finding ways to work with smart TV manufacturers themselves, not just Roku, doing it on their own. Um, and Google also, I believe, works with various manufacturers like Sharp and others to create Android TV, where it's another similar streaming um, platform that is embedded inside the TV. And they also have Chromecast, although my Chromecast only actually allows me to Chromecast stuff from my laptop. So I don't know if the new Chromecasts have a uh, platform feature that lets you view Netflix. I'm not too sure. My Chromecast is also, once again, an old, outdated model like most technology at my house. So I might not be the best um, judge there in, in terms of which product is better. But at least from the review sites that I was looking through, everyone seems to kind of conclude that Roku is better, but it still comes down to individual taste like I personally have an Apple TV because most of my products are Apple and I like the AirPlay feature, which Roku does not have. So that would probably skew my decision. But yeah, like I, got, I was thinking, well, does that, does the device count really determine how valuable or, you know, just kind of give you the sense of the strength of a business? Because I think I'm not too familiar exactly, but I believe ballpark Apple's market share in the global smartphone landscape is something like 20%. But they are still arguably one of the biggest companies in the world that churn off a ton of cash and they're highly profitable. So you know, market share alone isn't technically, um, at least market share by device count, isn't technically, I think, the the be-all and by-all, be-end and... Uh, honestly, I'm butchering the phrase. Anyhow, I don't think it's the uh, ultimate indicator um, of how dominant a company is. And then there was another article I read from Marketing Dive that talked about the distribution of actual OTT ad inventory um, over 2019. And I think that might be possibly a better indicator. Um, so Roku had 53% um, of the OTT ad inventory that was monetized, and Amazon Fire TV was behind it at 14%, Google Chromecast behind it at 8%, and those three players kind of splitting more than 75% of the OTT ads in 2019. So given that, it makes you think, well, um, by device count, um, Roku seems to be pretty in a tight race of Amazon, but by ads, it seems like Roku monetizes much more. And that might be just based on how the model is possibly different. So then they took me into the realm of how does Roku actually make money? And it turns out it's kind of like a razor razor blade kind of model if you're familiar. So if you're not familiar, Gillette, back when they were known as the company for razor blades, um, before like the dollar razor blade cl clubs came along, Gillette would sell these razors for a, for a pretty kind of decent price, um, but it Gillette didn't make much money on it. And it was, I think they might have possibly even lost money or it was just razor thin margins. But then the way the company actually made money was on the razor blades because people have, would just need one razor, but they would just continuously switch over the blades, which cost much less to build, uh, much less to manufacture. And so the margins on it were quite frothy. But you sell the razor so that people will eventually stick with the product and just continue to buy razor blades for the rest of their lives. That was the idea. And Roku seems to employ a very similar model to that because their revenue stream is 
um, split onto two particular segments. There's the platform and the player. The player segment uh, historically just generates very negligible um, gross profit. It ranges from something like 1% to 6% in gross margin. So it's quite negligible. And I think management's also noted that, yeah, that's not really where they want to make their money. The idea is to have a very affordable hardware player so that people will you know, use the software and they'll make their money on the software. So as kind of you can interpret by the revenue segment name called the player revenue segment, it's about selling the streaming devices. And all the costs associated are all the manufacturing and all that, which Roku doesn't do themselves. They out all their manufacturing partners are all based out in either China or Southeast Asia, um, which could potentially pose a supply chain risk. I'm not sure. Um, not much further detail is shown on how the contracts are developed, but it is always a risk when all your manufacturing is done um, outside of your home country. Who knows what kind of trade regulations will play in, into factor. For the platform revenue segment, um, there's mainly three business models related to the platform revenue segment. Um, overall, the I guess the razor blade segment generates a gross profit margin, gross margin of something around forty percent. Uh, it's been continuously growing from thirty percent from twenty seventeen, but as of recently, it's at forty three percent, and it's made up around two thirds of total revenue in twenty nineteen. And so the three business models that make up the platform segment that I mentioned are first the transaction video on demand called TVOD, TVOD is kind of like the a la carte purchases inside Roku. So there's various kind of movies that um, you can purchase or slash like, I guess, rent. And each transaction, um, Roku takes a bit of a share of that. And there's the subscription video on demand called SVOD. And that's where... For example, if I use Roku, it seems that if, let's say, I don't have a Hulu subscription, but I end up wanting to get it because it's there, and I think, well, they might have stuff that I want to watch. And so if I subscribe um, while on the Roku platform, then Roku takes a cut of the new subscription revenue. And then there's the advertising-supported video on demand, which is called AVOD, and that's for the channels that have no subscription to users, so it's all the free channels, and that's those are all ad-supported. So in one way, it's kind of like how, uh, I think in the previous episodes where I looked into Spotify, Spotify has the ad-supported free as well, and then there's the premium uh, subscriber one. So it's kind of like that. So there's the AVOD is the free channels that are ad-supported. And that management has noted is the kind of fast-growing segment. They don't distinguish uh, the revenue breakdown between these three primary business models, but I believe the AVOD would become would be the bigger chunk of total revenue um, because it seems that Roku's primary business model is ad driven. It's really focused on the OTT ads, um, and that also means I think getting that would mean that they would want to get more free channels on online onto their platform, and to do that they need to showcase that they are the platform to be on and. That means that they have a very highly engaged user base. So more accounts, more streaming time would lead to more channels wanting to come on and be part of the Roku channel. And ergo, advertisers would say, yeah, like let's do it. I'll advertise on Roku. So I think that's the kind of high-level way of looking at the business model and how Roku actually makes money. So yeah, like I think that made me think of, okay, so what's special about this? Why are people talking about Roku? What's, what's the deal? 
and I think I think it's more so focused on the industry uh, dynamic and the industry shift more so than the individual company, which I'll kind of get to a little later. But I think it's part of this big cord cutting movement. Um, like I personally haven't had a cable TV, I guess, a cable TV service since I got it. I remember getting in my first year when I actually when I first bought the TV. So I think I cut the cord in 2013. Um, so it's been seven years for me and yeah like I've never really thought about going back to it and I think most like most of my friends all use some kind of streaming service and I think smart TVs will become the new normal and there is that huge behavioral slash technological shift that would also mean that the big TV uh, ad market would have to move on to the streaming side of things. So in the U.S., I think historically the TV ad spend was around seventy billion dollars, and that's a big chunk. That's a lot of money, given how Roku with its actually I don't know what Roku's market cap. Let me look at that right now. Mm-hmm. Roku. It is at eighteen billion dollars as of today. Wow, quite a big company. And their revenue is at, I believe, they just exceeded $1 billion in 2019. So, and given how much of, well, two-thirds of the revenue um, is platform-based, and if we assume, let's say, at least 50% is on focused on the ads, then we get something like, um, what am I missing here? Yeah, something, maybe $300, $400 million in ad revenue that they got in 2019. So that, I think, is a big kind of factor related to the thesis of Roku, just the fact that, yeah, like, money's going to come to come to streaming services, and Roku is this is kind of the leading market platform in the U.S. where all the channels are going um, for the kind of streaming. And it's kind of I, possibly even the movement of where you had the unbundling, where you had all these various individual streaming sites, and then the movement to rebundling, where um, all the streaming the OTT content providers are all kind of moving on to platforms like Amazon Fire TV or Roku TV, um, as well as the various channels. Like, for example, the History Channel. Where is that going to go? If I want to watch the History Channel, is it going to be on Roku's free channels and I'll just watch it and it's going to be ad-supported? Possibly. And I think that's kind of a big chunk of the, th- of the thesis for why Roku would be able to kind of capitalize on that. But... I think overall, the whole whole time when I was researching the company, the kind of nagging thought I had was, well, is it really different? Like, like right now for me, I don't, I just don't have the channels, and I don't really care for it. Now, it might also be because of just pure ignorance in one way, right? Where they say ignorance is bliss, and so I don't really know what I'm missing out on. But at the same time, like all TV really is, in in most cases, it is kind of more of a pleasure related thing, and you don't really want to spend the good chunk of your day watching TV, right? So assuming that the four hour is kind of the limit, um, you know, the three hour average, like the view, viewing time hopefully doesn't go up too much, at least for the sake of human productivity. But does that make Roku unique? Um, you know, do they have more channels than others? Do they have uh, different kinds of providers? And so then got, that got me thinking about, well, do they have ex- exclusivity? Is there kind of a partnership ecosystem thing that I should look at? So I first looked into how Roku is actually distributed because Roku needs their hardware inside homes. And 
we also can't forget that this entire thesis relies on the TV being a crucial part of someone's life. Um, like I know there are people that don't own a TV and they just stream everything on their laptops and even just have like a computer monitor. But I think over time, at least at the current moment, TV is still kind of an intentional part and everyone likes to gather around the living room or the family room and gather around the TV. So the TV might go away in the future, but I think in the near term, at least in the next 10 years, I don't see the idea of a TV disappearing. So I think that might be relatively safe for Roku, um, that it'll still be around and smart TVs will continue to be a thing. But still, Roku needs to get themselves inside a home. And it's once again, it's like Peloton, where you need the hardware inside the home and then you will monetize on the software. So how does Roku do that? It mainly has three major distribution partners, Amazon, Walmart, and Best Buy. They sell their own stuff, I think, online as well. But these three mega retail giants account for 72% of the 2019 player sales and that's honestly that's quite a massive concentration um limited to three particular vendors and in one way i guess it kind of makes sense and it might make sense for most retailers um especially given how amazon and walmart are really just always going to be duking it out to become the retail for retail supremacy um so given there are the large platforms it might just make sense that maybe it's just not unique to roku that they're distributing their distribution is so focused on these major retailers. But it still also kind of provide creates a situation where, yeah, like especially with the fact that they're competing against Amazon, like how would that work, right? Um, you kind of need to hope that Amazon uh, is a good actor with everything and allows uh, Roku TVs to be sold on Amazon's platform as well. On the content side, uh, I think it's also important that Roku has all the content providers. So then that, I think, was the thing I was curious to learn more about. Like, do they have any kind of exclusivity? At least from what management has shared, the three, the top three streaming services, which they haven't named, represent more than 50% of all hours streamed on Roku. So they haven't mentioned it, but I would wager a guess that it includes some kind of, some mix of Netflix, Disney, possibly Amazon Prime, like Prime Video, uh, Hulu, maybe even HBO. I'm not sure. But I'd be even more curious if the top six make up something like 80% of the streaming hours, which, once again, I think creates a kind of um, situation where if one of the streaming partners no longer goes on Roku, then uh, Roku's platform might not be as valuable. So it's... I feel like there has to be some kind of value add that Roku provides because it's kind of like if Roku, so it's it's kind of a chicken or an egg thing where Roku currently is one of the leading TV, um, smart TV platforms or was that, streaming platforms in the US. So yeah, everybody wants to be on it. But if they ever lose their position, then would everyone kind of bail out from that? Like I know Twitch is no longer on Roku and that kind of makes sense if Amazon wants to be competitive and Amazon can because Amazon owns Twitch. And so if if Twitch is now only available on Amazon Fire TV, and if you're someone who is a hardcore gamer and you love Twitch streams, then you would probably go out and buy Amazon Fire TV because you Twitch is such a big uh, thing that matters to you. And what if Google decides to pull YouTube out of Roku and say it's going to be exclusive only on Chromecast and Android TV? What happens then? So I think there's definitely that situation where 
Roku currently competes with Amazon, Google, Apple, and those are the big three, at least in the US. And each of those three have a play in content creation. Google has YouTube, Apple has Apple TV, um, was it Apple Plus? Or, you know, they have their own studio and Apple streaming. Um, Amazon has Twitch as well as Prime Video. And Netflix is kind of on everyone's platform. Um, and so my thought was, does Netflix, because, you know, Roku was spun out of Netflix, is there some kind of unique affiliation, exclusivity possibly? But it doesn't seem like that is the case, especially because the reason why Roku was spun out is because Netflix didn't want to have any kind of messy um, conflict of interest situation. So it seems like Netflix just wants to be on everyone's platform. And rightly so, I think they are still the dominant streaming platform right now. So that doesn't give Roku any kind of unique moat, I think. Um, like there was, there's an interview that I cite here where Anthony Woods was asked by an interview on cordcarding dot com where what what he thought Roku's competitive advantage was, and Woods said, "I'll quote him here. He says our competitive advantage is our software. It is purpose built for TV as opposed to being built primarily for phones or PCs. This results in a better UI, more content, and a lower HW cost structure." I don't really know if that's a competitive advantage. Like why can't Amazon or Google build a better software over time. Like they have all the money, they have way more people. Now the argument could be that yeah, but they're not as focused. Like look at you know what hap- what is the current situation with Spotify? Like I believe that Spotify is going to dominate the entire audio market. Um and that's kind of something I talk about in the Spotify episode, but yeah, is some can argue isn't Roku in a similar situation? I don't think so because if I look at Spotify's market, they once again compete with Amazon, Google and Apple, but it's a different situation where none of the players own any of the content. There's a separate group of the big three music labels uh, like Time Warner, Sony Music, and Universal. Um, and none of them actually have any play in the distribution site, which is not the case for TV streaming platforms. Each of the players actually have a hand in content production as well as being providers of this kind of distribution channel that each other also play on top of, right? So I feel like that kind of puts Roku at some kind of a disadvantage because I have to think then what makes Roku unique? Um, Like obviously there, it seems like more ads are going to Roku. And so then is it the case that more of the free channels want to go on Roku? Or is it that the other companies don't really care too much about um, expanding the, like having ads and stuff because they don't have all the other free channels. And so would that be the competitive advantage is the idea that Roku kind of becomes this de facto TV with all these free channels that the other platforms will probably not pursue? Um, I'm not sure. But at the current point, it makes me wonder if, like what really is Roku's unique advantage? And so it makes me also believe or wonder, then does that mean that Roku just has to continuously spend and spend and spend so that they become the the de facto like 70% market share in the US so that everyone will just want to be on their platform and they just end up killing all the other platforms? Possibly. Um, I think a few other things that I was, I kind of tried deeper about in the report that I'll kind of share at a high level. It's just, I don't know if Roku can actually expand globally. Um, Like they have products out there, but I have no indication of how successful they are. Um, They don't have as big of a global reach, obviously, as compared to like Amazon that already have offices everywhere. And I think when you're doing a global expansion, you really need people, like you need boots in the ground and you need people there. I think it's um, ridiculous for people to assume that a strategy that worked in the US 
will ever work in Asia or Europe. Um, I think there definitely is some kind of home country bias where people think that the rest of the world will react similarly to um, North America, which from my experience is not the case, at least in Asia. And I think people in Europe will also say the same as well, because once again, Asia and Europe are not just singular, uh, cult- a single culture continent. They have so many countries in there, which is very different from North America. North America is practically just, you know, was it three countries that make up North America? And really, I think Canada and the U.S. have very similar cultures. Although we like to say we're different, I think most of the times we have very similar values. We look at things very similar and we have very similar behaviors. It's just Canadians are just less extreme and more conservative than U.S. I think that's the stereotype. And that might be pretty accurate, I think. Um, another thing, I this was something that concerned me when I was looking at Pinterest as well is I think there's a belief that because um, t- you know of cord cutting and that people don't watch as much TV, that it's all going into streaming, that people believe all the stream the TV ad spends will go into streaming now, kind of a easy transfer. But I don't think that's as easy. Um, like if I think about uh, typical um, offline ads, like billboards, newspapers, magazines, all that, and how much of print media is dying and it's all digital and how a lot of the ad monies are going to digital and like mobile and how Facebook gets a lot of it. Well, let's say if I was P- if I was running PNG like Procter & Gamble and I spent $10 million on offline ads and if I found out that I only have to spend a million dollars on Facebook um, to get the same or even better results because of all the targeting and all the data and all the individualized stuff I can do with all the advertising, um, digital advertising like tools, then yeah, I'm not going to spend $10 million. I'm going to keep the $9 million and invest it somewhere else. It doesn't. There's no requirement that I spend that exact same amount of money on marketing dollars. Um, if I can gain all the customers with much less marketing spend, hell yeah, I'm not going to spend as much. And I also feel like there's probably some kind of diminishing return curve where, yeah, like I'm not going to get 10 times or 50 times more value by spending 10, 10 times on Facebook. Um, it might actually result in much less value. So then I might have to find somewhere else to invest, maybe into R&D, um, which can change the, dy- the, the dynamic considerably. And I think that can probably be the same for TV ads. If I spent $10 million on TV ads and I find out, well, for pro- programmatic ads on OTT, uh, these OTT ads, if I only spend a million dollars and I get the same results, will I spend the remaining $9 million once again on like Roku or like other platforms? Maybe, maybe not. Um, this is all kind of, hypothetical and theoretical and i could be totally wrong but uh, i think it makes me very kind of skeptical on the ability on on one the transition for all tv ad dollars going into these streaming platforms as people forecast and or it could just be yeah it could be the opposite where even more go in and people just spend more money on advertising than before it's quite possible advertising spend has continuously grown over the years even though uh, the channels might have gotten more efficient, but I feel the costs have actually come down considerably, which was not the case in the past. So that actually makes me think um, I would, it gives me more faith in my own thesis, but obviously I'm tooting my own horn and I'm not really much of an advertising expert. So just kind of, once again, my thoughts and opinions. But yeah, I could actually see more of a, more of a possible like oligopoly dynamic coming out with Apple, Amazon, and Google kind of playing, you know, dominating the market with, I don't know, maybe all four players have like 80% or 90% of the global market. And then um, you have local players dominating small, you know, one-off, one single country market, something like that. Or maybe Roku will get bought out. 
who knows it seems quite possible that maybe google could buy it out just because of the reach that they have and just completely change the software because you don't have to change the hardware at all just update it and go for exclusivity i'm not sure it'll be interesting how the dynamic plays out um but yeah i contrast to um the i guess previous business research reports i normally do i don't I didn't really look into the kind of financial aspects of it. Um, not to mention that I believe Roku doesn't actually generate any free cash flow um, from the very, very quick and dirty math I did just with my shitty mental math skill, math skills. Um, so I don't think they actually do generate much free cash flow. Um, if they do, it's very negligible. And this is if I were to capitalize just kind of basic human capital costs related to R&D, which is their biggest expense um, for reinvestment, which is something I like to see. I like to see companies that put most of their oper- operating expenses on R&D for product development and much less on sales and marketing because I don't think that's the way for long-term sustainable um, growth. But anyhow... My interest in the company kind of faltered in the culture and management side of things. Um, I was pretty excited early on because I found out there was a, th- a three-page culture document for Roku written by Anthony Woods in 2015. So I read through it, and honestly, and TLDR, it was nothing nothing remarkable um, stood out for me. I think overall I got the understanding that the culture of Roku is possibly similar to netflix in that it's you know for adults it's for very self-driven people it's about people who are you know quite autonomous um they'll treat you like adults they focus on these simple systems and just kind of figure figure it out yourself kind of thing uh what was unique specifically i guess would be that they do not believe in performance reviews so your pay is definitely not tied to your performance reviews and when i looked at a few uh glass door ratings where they were rated 3.9 out of 5 um the reviews kind of cited very similar things where there was kind of a lack of performance reviews. Um, the You get a lot of autonomy. It's for people who are extremely self-driven. But the And some criticisms were related to like people development where there didn't seem to be much of it. It was more kind of figure yourself out, develop yourself, and you will either sink or swim that way. And that might result in why I think the current kind of top executive management lacks a kind of depth except for Woods, which has been with the company for, you know, since the beginning as the founder. Um, the head of, I think the CFO joined in 2015, I guess probably in preparation for the IPO in 2017, I'm not sure, but he's noted to step down and they're looking for a successor. The reason being he wants to spend more time with his, fa- with his family. I'm not sure if that's the real reason, who knows? But the CEO is leaving after five years with the company. Um, the general secretary, aka legal, joined in 2014. The SVP of account acquisition joined in 2019. SVP of platform joined in 2012. Overall, I felt um, given the company kind of went off on its own in 2008, I don't know, I was hoping to see more continuity uh, or more of like internal development instead of um, a focus. It seems possibly on hiring the right person for the right job now. Um, they do have kind of a fire fast kind of mentality at Roku, it seems. And so it kind of gives me some kind of impression of a, a mercenary-like culture. Um, I think Netflix was accused of that in some way, but I think it's still different from Netflix from what I read about. I think Netflix is more about um, just, it's more of a, I don't know, a warrior culture. It's just very focused on super high performers. And if you don't fit the bucket, you get fired immediately. And people look at that quite negatively, but I I don't. Um, I think that culture can work 
to create a certain kind of environment. And if that's what you want, then it could be super effective. Um, and that could be what Roku is, but it, I personally like to see a lot of people development and that doesn't seem to, seem to be the case here. I also feel like the fact that they have titles like SVP, which is which stands for Senior Vice President, um, is kind of hypocritical to the idea of building simple systems. Like, you know what's not simple? A title like Senior Vice President. Uh, it makes me feel like they have a bureaucratic structure that goes against the idea of moving quickly. Now, these are all just, once again, interpretations. Um, but I think it kind of... the the um, uncertainty and kind of like ah, uh, like iffiness kind of went further when first okay so the ownership aspect that I also care about very deeply uh, that was pretty good. Um, Anthony Wood owns something like eighteen percent ownership of all outstanding shares if his Class B shares were to convert, and uh, the other kind of executive officers all seem to have a pretty kind of material enough stake um, in the business. Most have the multiple voting class B shares as well. But I think the big turnoff came in the compensation side of things because um, so Anthony Wood gets, I think his annual salary is some, on average like a million dollars a year. And on top of that, he gets stock options. Um, in 2019, it was for $11 million. And I don't know what the performance metric is. Obviously, since I guess they don't have various performance targets or objectives for employees. They don't have that for management either. Um, I get their logic. The logic is that they believe if you have set objectives ahead of time, um, if because you work in such a dynamic industry, if things change and your objectives are no longer valid, you're kind of focused on the wrong metrics. And I can totally see that. And so you want to be flexible and you want to be um, just focused on doing the right thing. And if that works out well, I think that could be extremely powerful. But it's just the fact that, you know, Anthony Woods, his uh, equity alone is worth like $3 billion, north of $3 billion. And you're still paying yourself stock options of $10 million. Uh, I just don't see what the necessity of that is. And the executives at Roku actually can choose to allocate their equity compensations in 100% stock option, 100% RSUs, or 50-50 mix. And... The fact that most of the executives, including Woods, chose to have 100% allocation in stock options, I feel creates a kind of short-term mentality. Um, I think the options vest on a monthly schedule, uh, and I think they vest already kind of being in the money. Um, so yeah, I it just doesn't give me the confidence that management thinks long-term. I kind of have a impression that they know that this isn't a long-term game, and they're kind of looking to be acquired. Um, yeah, it doesn't give me comfort that management is looking out 10 years out and saying, yeah, we're going to be a standalone company that dominates the market. It kind of feels like we're going to, you know, they did the equity financing for $300 million this year, which makes me also wonder, yeah, like, I guess they don't have any near-term path to generating free cash flow because why are they raising $300 million? And now they have a billion dollars of cash on their balance sheet. Like, I like that they're conservative. I like that they have a lot of cash, but... They already seem to have an ample amount of cash. Why get more? Was it opportunistic? I'm not sure. But um, yeah, like it. there's all these things that make me kind of, I guess, uneasy about the company. And it's kind of more of a situation where it's kind of more of a long-term wait and see. Like I, it's hard for me to see out 10 years and think of a situation where Roku dominates this market. Um, I could see them make a lot of pivots and maybe it, it executes well and works out. But I think it's a pretty difficult situation. It's pretty complex. There's a lot of moving parts. Um, 
with the players involved specifically that I think are pretty well positioned. Um, so yeah, yeah. I think overall though, like just it's it's weird to kind of base a thesis on like management compensation uh, schemes, but for me, like that makes it very uneasy, and that's kind of put on a negative bias to me for what Roku is as a company. Um, and yeah, I think the business isn't phenomenal enough for me to go oh yeah i'm so excited like uh generally i find nowadays the kind of ad driven digital ad driven businesses to kind of have a mismatch between the uh utility surplus they provide and the economic surplus um like google provides so much value to the world yet i don't think they're making as much money as they're actually providing value for and if that's the case for google i don't see other companies being able to close the gap further. Um, so that's just kind of a view that I have. And yeah, that's kind of my overview of Roku. Uh, I hope this was interesting. I hope this was fun. And yeah, please check out my more detailed write-up. Um, although I think I talked about most of it, actually, on the podcast today. The write-up more has just graphs and all the charts and stuff that might be fun to look at for holistic numbers. And yeah, so once again, thanks for tuning in. I'm sorry this was kind of delayed. And yeah, I hope to... Be back to a more tighter schedule and stay more focused. I've just been having trouble being focused lately. And yeah, thanks for tuning in and I appreciate the support. Take care.